Uh, this morning, I um, am going to introduce my friend Derek Rishmawi. He's going to be opening God's Word for us this morning. Um, Derek is the RUF campus minister at UCI. And uh, RUF, if you don't know, is um, our denomination's campus ministry to, uh, I think we have ministries on over 150 campuses at this point. And uh, RUF is, uh, is, is near and dear to my heart because uh, Ashley and I served um, at the University of Utah with RUF for six years before we came here to plant this church. And so um, Derek is in his first year at, at uh, RUF at UCI, and I've been enjoying getting to know him over the last uh, several months, and I'm sure you're going to benefit from uh, his ministry this morning. Derek is also a, uh, you can come on up, uh, I'll just keep talking about you until you come up. Um, Derek is also working on, <laughs> uh, working on his PhD at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and one of the hosts of the Mere Fidelity podcast, right? Yeah. Which is uh, a great resource that uh, you should definitely look into. So Derek, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Um, hello, good morning. Resurrection OC once again. Well, I gotta cut all this because Bryce just introduced me. It's a pleasure to be here, sharing out of God's word with you. Uh, it's it's especially a pleasure because uh, I know y'all are uh, you're with us in the ministry. You pray for us, you support us, and so it's a blessing to be able to share out of God's word and uh, and just be a part of your family for the morning. Uh, in order to do that well, I am actually just going to ask you all to bow your heads and pray with me again for the reading of God's word, and then we'll stand and we'll go ahead and do all that. So go ahead and bow your heads and pray. Um, Holy Father, you are good and you are kind and righteous. You have given us this time and this place to hear from you, to praise you, to engage with you. We pray right now that in this time and this place you would meet with us and speak your word to us again. Take up your word by your spirit and reapply it to our hearts in a way that would um, drown out every other word that would buy for our affections and uh, attentions and dominate our minds. God, I pray right now that in this time in this place, Jesus' word would be the word that determines who we are and what we believe and how we live so that we might live more and more like Jesus and look more and more like Jesus and participate in the joy of Jesus. God, we ask you for these things in expectation because these are the things that you have promised to us in your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture for today is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to go ahead and read it out, but if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, turn in your Bibles there yourselves, uh, if you have them. Uh, but I'll, I'll go ahead and read that out. Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11. You would have thought I would have put the little marker there, given that I knew I was preaching this today. Oh, there it is, okay. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Here now, reading from the Gospel. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you can be seated. So, uh, Bryce mentioned earlier that uh, since Ash Wednesday, y'all have been entering into this season of Lent together, this season uh, where Christians take special care to prepare for the coming of Easter. They meditate on, on the life and the work and the suffering of Jesus headed towards Good Friday and the cross. And to make me think here, there would be no more fitting passage to look at this morning than the story of the temptation of Jesus in the desert by Satan, right? The this, this story in itself is just compelling on, on any Sunday, right? There's a reason artists like Botticelli have painted it, authors like Dostoevsky have stuck it right in the middle of their, of their high works of literature, Brothers Karamazov, that compelling uh, portrait. When we read it, there's a sense of something archetypal, right? Cosmic, real, that exerts a force on our imagination in a powerful way. We feel that if we begin to understand this story, we could begin to understand some of, the, some of the deepest conflicts of good and evil, not just out there in the drama of history, but in our own hearts. Right? I don't think I have to convince any of you that you struggle with temptations. Anyone with the slightest sense of self-awareness knows that there are those times that it feels like you're not just battling yourself. There's a voice that's much darker, much stronger, more insidious than you would have expected to hear in your own heart and mind. There are those times when you give in, once again, when you give yourself over to what you shouldn't give yourself over to, the thing that you've been resisting for so long, and yet you sit there, once again, frustrated and ashamed in the darkness. We've all felt that at some time or another. What I want to do this morning is to look at how the story of Jesus' victory over the temptation of Satan is actually the key and hope for us to conquer and be victorious over the temptations we face in our own lives. What I want to do is look at that by looking at three points in this text, or make three points about the text. One, I want to explore what's at stake in this temptation in the desert. Like, what's, what's, at, what's at trial in the trial? What the shape of the temptations are. And then what is the accomplishment of the trial, of the temptation of Jesus? And my hope is that as we see these things, we will gain hope in seeing the victory of Jesus for us and eventually in us. And so that's what I want to get into this morning. Uh, but, Mar uh, Bryce, I'm so used to uh, preaching for another pastor named Marshall, but Bryce told me I only have like two hours, right? Um, <laughs> So we've got to get going here. Uh, no, but with that, we do have to get going. So I want to get into the stake of the temptation. Uh, what's going on in this story? What's at the heart of it? 
Well, to set that up, we have to look at some of the context. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads again, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the text says then, uh, which indicates that this is following right after something else. Right? You, you, have to, you have to get used to reading the Bible that way. The verses and the chapter divisions are uh, later additions. They're artificial. They're helpful. But we have to look back further. What came right before this? What came right before this was the story of the baptism of Jesus at the River Jordan by his cousin, John the Baptist. Essentially, Jesus went to the River Jordan to be baptized, the, the, the Bible says, to fulfill all righteousness. Right? Jesus didn't go to get baptized uh, because he was a sinner who needed to repent. He, he was not. He did it as a way of taking up his mantle as his role of, of our Redeemer. And essentially, it's like he's putting on the team journey jersey and, and, and joining the team or, or accepting uh, the nomination to be the party candidate at the convention. Right? Jesus is accepting his role as our candidate and our representative in the drama of cosmic salvation. And at that point, the Spirit descends from the heavens on him in the form of a dove. And Jesus hears the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These words function as a sort of commission to Jesus that launches him on his mission into the world, to go out into the world. And this is the heart of the challenge. This is what's at stake in the temptation. What does Jesus think it means to be God's son? How is he going to live out being God's son on our behalf? Will he pull it off? Right? Because to really understand what's at stake, the weight behind this, we need to hear what the original readers of Matthew's Gospels would have heard having known the Old Testament as well as they knew it. See, if, with, with Old Testament ears, knowing the story of Israel, they would have picked up hints of a couple of other stories about ones who were called God's sons, who were tempted and yet failed. The first one that we hear about is just Adam, right? The first character in the Bible, the first man in the Bible, is called God's son in a couple of different places. One in Genesis 5, there's a genealogy that very clearly delineates him as, as the one who was made in God's image in his likeness, just like every, every child of it. Uh, every other uh, man named in the genealogy is named that way. But it's even clearer in Luke chapter 3 in the genealogy of Jesus, which goes all the way back to Adam. And it says in verse 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <coughs> Adam was a son of God because he was made in God's image. He was a chip off the old block. And the idea is that he's supposed to go out into the world and represent God as a child would represent their family, to, to, to build the world as God builds the world, to rule the world as God would rule the world. That was his call. But if you've read Genesis 3, you see that he failed at it very quickly. Right? This son was tempted in the garden to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is essentially to try and rule in his own place, in his own way, as his own lord. And so he, he, he's tempted and he fails. And he breaks relationship with God and breaks the image in that sense. And so when he and Eve disobeyed together, they were exiled from the garden east into the wilderness. And all of their children were condemned into the wilderness of sin after him. And that is the story of the trial and temptation and failure of God's first son. The second story comes to us in the Old Testament, Exodus 4. At least it begins there. In Exodus, God calls a man named Moses 
to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery. The nation of Israel is in slavery. They're in bondage to the Egyptians. And so God calls a man named Moses to go to speak to Pharaoh and to say to Pharaoh, he says, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And so we see here that God called Israel out of Egypt to be his new firstborn son, to worship him out in the, in the, in the wilderness and live for him and represent him before the world, honoring him. Where did he call them? Well, he called them into the desert, to the foot of Mount Sinai, where he gave them the covenant and the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, sadly, this second son also immediately failed, right? Right after the Ten Commandments, there's the golden calf incident where Israel makes a golden calf an idol, which is just immediately a violation of the Second Commandment to make no idols of God, and yet they make an idol of God, and they, they fall down before it. And, and the whole wilderness incident is, is Israel continually doubting, continually uh, failing God, and, and eventually failing to enter the Promised Land out of fear of God's provision. <coughs> And, and so they're, 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 they're bound to wander the desert for 40 years. And that's the temptation and failure of the second son. And so now with that in our minds, we come to Matthew and we read this passage and we read with new eyes that Jesus is the son driven into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights in order to face a temptation, a trial by the devil. And you start to realize that this is a story about Jesus being the true final son, the new second Adam the true Israel who is tempted and tried under harder conditions to see if he can live into that identity of being the son. Will he live up to the call that was placed on us in the garden? Will he actually represent God in the world? And that's reinforced even further when we see the way Satan challenges him. The first two challenges Satan levels at Jesus begin, if you are the son of God, then. And the commentators point out that it's not like a question of whether or not you're the son of God. It's like, well, you're the son of God, so go ahead and live this way. And what you see he's trying to do is he's trying to trip Jesus up, to trick him, to corrupt Jesus' mission before it even gets off the ground. And so the whole game is at stake in the trial, in the desert. If Jesus fails here, the whole plan fails. His mission fails, the kingdom of God fails, our salvation fails. That is what's at stake in the temptation the kingdom of God, our salvation, and the sonship of Jesus himself. So the question then becomes, what do the temptations actually look like? What's the shape? And this is where things maybe touch down for some of us into our lives. What, what do the temptations look like? One thing we have to see is at the core, every temptation is aimed at getting Jesus to misunderstand God's word, misunderstand his character, and therefore what it means to be his son. Look with me at verse 2 in the second temptation, or the first temptation. It says this, And after 40 days, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the first basic temptation is just being hungry, Right? Early church father John Chrysostom says the devil's smart because he's old and he's been at it for a really long time. And so he just starts with the basics. He starts with the belly, the, the immediacy of human need for food. And we all know that one, right? Y'all y'all heard of being hangry, hungry and angry? Like that. I get there I'm like four hours in and he's at forty days. 
right? 49 is nothing. And so Satan comes at him right there. And it may be a good place to handle this objection some of you may have right already is, is okay, he's hungry, but like, he's God, right? Temptation, he's God. He, he, he can last out 40 days, right? And it's true, he is. He is God. The Bible does teach that Jesus is both fully God, but it also teaches that he is fully human, right? He has a full divine nature and a fully real human nature, body and soul, heart, mind, nerves, stomach, stomach acid, all of it. Everything that we are, he is, except sin. Which means he could feel real fear, real pain, really die. And right here in the text, it says very clearly he was really hungry. Just like you or I would be at this point, 40 days in. And so Satan comes at him and tempts him, basically saying, look, God has left you to die out here. right? You're in the desert. There's nothing to eat. He has provided you nothing. So you've got to take care of yourself. right? Use your power. Make that bread. Take it. Seize it. It worked before, right? Worked with Adam. Worked with Israel. And how often does it work with us? Right? How often do we believe the lie that God won't provide for you what you need, so you just got to provide it for yourself? How often do you think God won't provide you with financial stability to live, and so you are tempted to cut corners at work? How often do you think that God won't provide you with intimacy or sexual connection so you, you cheat and take a shortcut with porn or sex outside of marriage in, in various forms? How often do you think that God won't provide relief for your fears and your pains and so an alcohol or pill addiction develops? Right? These are real struggles that we face and buy into in the immediacy of our need because in that moment it is so easy to believe that God does not see and God does not care. But Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better, and he responds to Satan with scripture. And he basically tells him, you want me to supply something for myself contrary to the way that God has willed and permitted it be, to be supplied to me. Right? And he says, I won't. Because God, by his word, created the heavens and the earth, and bread and sex and life and everything else. And so he can and he will provide for me everything I need by his word, according to his word, when he knows that I need it, as he wills it. Basically, he trusts what God says in his baptism, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. If he sent me, he will sustain me. His word determines who I am, and his word provides for who I will be. And I will not deviate from it. So without failing, Satan tries something else. Verse 5, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus says to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here we get a change of scenery. We go to the top of the temple. And this is significant because the temple was the place where Israel knew that God was faithful to keep his promises, right? He said to Solomon, when Solomon built the temple, if you come to my, if you face the temple, you pray at the temple, I will surely hear you. And so Satan brings him here, and then he goes about quoting scripture, misquoting it, twisting it, scripture about the anointed Messiah, and suggesting that nothing bad should happen to him, right? Essentially, he says, go ahead and prove it, right? 
Show these people who you are. You're God's son, right? God will save you. God should save you. Nothing bad should happen to you. Right? And uh, notice how on the devil's theory here, there should never be any martyrs. Right? God's son shouldn't suffer. Son should have a life of privilege and ease. Right? The devil was playing prosperity preacher. But if you have faith, God will give you health and wealth and every blessing you think you need in this life. So make him prove it. And how often are we tempted to believe something similar? But we don't buy into the prosperity gospel as we hear it on you know, Christian TV sometimes. But think about how often we've been tempted to say something like, uh, if you're really God, if you really love me, then you would fix this for me. Right? You would heal my sickness right now. You would fix my job. You would, you would heal my marriage. You would deal with my kid. You would... I'm here in church, aren't I? I put my faith in you. I'm righteous and you promised to do this thing. And this is exactly what Jesus will not do. Right? He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, Jesus knows that re the real faith of a son is not childish or manipulative or mercenary or religious bribery. It's not, it's not the kid who does what I used to do. You know, if you really love me, Mom, then you'll get X and then just whatever you want to put in the basket. That, that's the proof of, 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 a, of a mother's love, right? Uh, Jesus knows that if God has to pay out for you to love him, if he has to perform for you to believe in him, that's not faith, right? Love doesn't say pay out and I'll love you. That's mercenary. Instead, Jesus trusts God as a true son. He has faith that God will, again, provide what he needs when he needs it. Right? I know my God will come through for me. I'm not going to test God. I'm going to trust God. And so he turns to the third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And here Satan takes Jesus, probably in a vision probably, to observe all the kingdoms and all their glory. If you just bow down, I'll give them to you. Now the funny thing about this temptation is that these are things that actually God had promised and prophesied the Messiah would have. All the kingdoms and all their glory will one day be the son of man's. He'll rule over them all. So what is the devil actually promising? Well, he's promising a shortcut to the power and the glory. He's promising a kingdom without a cross. And this temptation really huts to cuts to the heart of all the temptations, which is this idea that sonship is a matter of privilege without responsibility. You've got power, make bread. You've got protection, jump off. And here it just becomes explicit. What Satan is offering is all of these things, but without the road of the cross and the suffering that Jesus knew he was going to have to endure in order to bring about the kingdom of God through the cross and our salvation. How often is something like this, again, the case for us? Right? We're, we're, not, we're not usually tempted by all the kingdoms and all their glory. Those are not in our reach. But there are small kingdoms, local glories that we are tempted by, shortcuts. We're tempted to, to make a business scheme that promises quick cash at the expense of investors or workers, gaining a promotion by uh, taking credit when not all of it is truly yours. 
getting ahead in class by cheating, uh, maintaining your position in your social group by downplaying the truth, not owning the gospel fully in their presence, right? gaining the kingdoms of the world through the ways of the world. And what you have to see is at the heart of it, every time we do that, we're bowing our knee to some other God. Right? You lie because safety is more important to you than God's name. You cheat because your reputation is more important to you than God's name. You take shortcuts because your comfort is more important to you than God's name. Functionally, every time I sin, there is a sense I'm bowing my knee to another God. Something else in that moment was more important to me than God's name and God's glory and God's honor. And the thing is here, Jesus, thankfully, does not do the same. He responds rightly. Why? Because he knows better than to believe Satan's lies. What does he know? He knows three things, at least. And he knows infinite things. He's Jesus. But he knows three things in this encounter. Right? The first thing he knows is that what the devil actually offers, he can't come through on. Right? Satan does this all the time. He's a liar. Like That's one of the things he does. He lies. It doesn't matter that he can't provide. He'll just say, he'll just say what he needs to get done anyways. So, so Satan's like a, a fisherman who baits a hook with what he knows we want, and then we bite down, all we get is a hook in our mouth and a piece of rubber, like some, some, some fake fly that looks like what we know, what he knows we want most. Right? So he knows what to use to catch us. Right? So, but Jesus is smarter than that. The second thing Jesus knows is that it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world but lose his very soul. So even those places where Satan does come through, he delivers something on the promise, it never turns out exactly like what you'd think it would. Right, I think about the ending of this one Twilight Zone episode, old show. Have you seen Twilight Zone? Anybody? Okay. All right. It's, I think it's on Netflix right now, but it, it's, it's around. So there's this one episode where there's a character who I really relate to. This guy, he just wants to read. Right, he, he's, he's, he wants to, I think he's a librarian, but he's always being constantly nagged and harassed and, and never being left alone. And uh, This big tragic, um, big tragedy happened, I think an H-bomb explodes. Like it's, it's the, you know, it's the world, end of the world happens. And, and he somehow survives and he's all alone, he's got enough food, uh, and then he stumbles in and he finds a library with all these books. And he's like, this, finally. I have my library, I have all my time, I have it. And so he grabs a book and the end of it is just him tripping and then like his glasses fall and he steps on it, he crushes them. And it's awful. And, and, uh, and that's what making a deal with the devil's like. Right? You think it's going to go one way. And you get it. And then heartache. Right? And then the, 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 the deal comes comes due, right? You get that, you go for that affair that you think is going to patch your existential angst and, uh, and heal whatever is lacking in your marriage, and then you end up in that same rut and with a broken marriage. But that's what the devil does. The third thing Jesus knows, and I reordered my sermon notes here, the third thing that Jesus knows, and this is the most important thing, is that he's the son with whom God is well pleased. And he loves God above all things. And he actually already has the glory that really matters. See, when you know you have the approval of the one person whose opinion actually matters, then all the other approval in the world doesn't matter a bit. Right? 
you wouldn't trade it for anything. When, 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 when it's your spouse or your kid or your father, whoever it is you matter most, when they, when you know they love you, when you know you're secure in that, you know, the extra 15, 20 hours in the office that might jeopardize that but move you up the, up the corporate ladder, it's not worth it. And you don't need it. You don't need that approval because you already have what you need. And Jesus has the Father's approval. The one person in the universe whose approval you actually need. And so at that moment, he, he, he looks at Satan and says, kick rocks, I will serve God alone. Be gone. Now that leaves us with a question. How can we stand with him? How can we say, be gone, Satan, with confidence and strength? Because as we were working through those temptations, I imagine for a number of us, we found ourselves reminded not, not so much all the places we've succeeded, but a lot of the places we failed. So how does Jesus' victory give us hope for our own? In short, because he won. Right? He won. That's the hope. Uh, and his victory wasn't just for him, it was for us. Listen to uh, 16th century reformer John Calvin. He comments on this passage. This is amazing. He says, The Son of God voluntarily endured the temptations which we are now considering and fought, as it were, in single combat with the devil, that by his victory he might obtain a triumph for us. Jesus' victory over the devil wasn't just for him. Remember, he is the true Adam. He is the true Israel. It's like, at, it's like in the ancient combat, right? You'd have two armies and they'd send out two champions to battle each other. Have you ever seen Troy? Opening scene of that. Not recommending you, but that happens, right? You have this opening battle. And Jesus goes out in single combat with the devil and he wins. And in his victory, if you've placed your faith in him, his victory becomes your victory. You are a champion in him in Christ, the champion, because that obedience was part of a long obedience, the long obedience of his whole life. It was foundational that he offered up at the end of his life in the cross in order to pay for our sins, wipe us clean of our guilt for all the times we've given in to temptation, for all the failures. And he wipes those clean, and then in pronouncement of that victory, the Father raises him from the dead and gives him new life. And if you have placed your faith in him, you are so united with him that that life becomes yours and every privilege, every benefit he's won becomes yours in him, which can help you now overcome the temptations of Satan. I'm going to name three benefits that you get because of this victory. The first that you get is that you have the same spirit that Jesus had, right? Realize Jesus was led out into the wilderness by the spirit. And he was born by the power of the spirit. He performed miracles in the power of the spirit. And he resisted the devil in the power of the spirit. I mean, think about the, the term Messiah. That's not just a name, Christ. It means Messiah. It means anointed one. And what was he anointed with? The Holy Spirit. And you have to know that when you put your faith in Jesus, you are given that same spirit. That's why we're we're Christians. We are anointed in Him in the same way. And you have to know, oftentimes when we're in these temptations, in these trials, we feel like we're all alone. But we're not. We live like beggars, even though we have a billion bucks in the bank account. Draw on that resource in those times of trial. You can go and you can ask the Spirit for strength and He will sustain you. 
Second, we've been given the same word. Right? Jesus conducted the whole battle in the power of the Spirit through the word. Every time Satan speaks, Jesus speaks the word in response. He knows exactly how Satan is twisting Scripture because he knows Scripture better than Satan. Right? And he knows the truth of it. So every time Satan lies about God, he knows better because he knows how God has revealed himself in his word. Calvin says that Scripture is, is Christ's shield and his sword. It's his true way of fighting. And the invitation then is for us to take up our sword and our shield and follow Jesus into studying his word. Right? You can study your word, study the word on your own daily. You can study it in Bible studies. This is why we study it together, the gathered proclamation. And the invitation is basically don't go out into the battlefield uh, in your underwear. Right? Put on, put on your armor, take up your shield, take up your sword. You are not defenseless in Christ. Finally, and most importantly, you have been given the same approval Jesus had in his baptism. Through faith in Christ, you're so united with Jesus that when God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, you should hear, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And as you hear that, as you're rooted in that, as your identity is grounded in the fact that you are God's child, you begin to live as if that's true. You begin to understand that God real, really will come through for you. You really do have the one approval that does matter most. You really do have a God who comes through and on the other side of a cross brings about a resurrection. And so in that, you can trust Him. You can rest in Him. You can rely on Him. And you can resist until the devil be gone. That's what James says. Resist the devil and he will flee you. And this is what we can do as sons and daughters of the Most High God because Jesus did this for us. And so that's the invitation today, is to rest in that identity, to celebrate that victory, and to find in that victory the hope of our own. So without bringing on bow our heads in prayer, we enter into a time of celebrating worship. Holy Father, you are good and you are victorious. We thank you for the victory that you have won for us. We thank you for your mighty power, the power of your cross, the power of your obedience, which was not just an obedience for yourself, but for us and on our behalf. We pray that this week we would go out and we would uh, go out in your power and your strength, and we would praise you, and we would live as if all these things were true, because they are in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.